Aha. So I am live. So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, February the 23rd, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 246. People are already here. This is a live chat, so it's unusual for a Friday. I want to thank you all for being here. And yes, Wildwoods Honeybee Farm was first. So hello to Grayson. You get front row seats there. So this is the last Friday of the month. It's hard to believe that. And it was nice and warm outside, sunny today in the northwestern part of the state of Pennsylvania, where I am. And it was 44 degrees Fahrenheit and sunny, which means the bees were flying everywhere. That's seven degrees Celsius for those who want to know. Guess what else is going to happen tonight? Full moon. So that means if you want to go out and wander around what they call the hunter's moon, you can do it by moonlight without your flashlight. So don't forget to check that out. Winds outside are 2.5 miles an hour. That's not bad at all. 80% relative humidity. And I think it's going to be a really good bee spring because guess what else is happening? Tomorrow it's going to get really cold. It's going to be terrible. However, the coming week in the Northeastern United States is going to be fantastic. What's the best day of the week where I live? Monday. It's going to be in the 50s. Tuesday is going to be warmer, but there's going to be rain. So we're going to talk about the weather just a little bit. I want to say hello to the people that are visiting here in the live chat. So you get to talk to one another. Keith Spillman is here. Half Tracks and Honey, he is my security guard, a.k.a. Bouncer. He's probably locked and loaded. He has armor. So. If you get out of hand, he's going to deal with you. So I want to thank Keith for being here. And I'm going to take your questions, but I'm also going to respond to questions that were submitted during the past week. So it's only fair. Blythewood Bee Company is here, you guys. So he's the inventor of Swarm Commander. Ask that man some questions because he knows stuff. Nikki's here. What I don't want to do is go through and name everyone because I'm going to overlook somebody and you're going to feel bad. So I just want to welcome you as a group. Feel free to talk to one another. And as was pointed out last time, which worked out pretty well, if you can, if it's a question, in other words, I know some of you are saying hello to one another and things like that. But if you have a question, type it in all caps. I'll equate that to you raising your hand saying I have a question or a comment. And I'm going to start off with the very first question that was submitted during the past week. So, uh, it's new stuff. This is from Garrett from Boise, Idaho. It says, hey, Fred, I just finished my horizontal hive. I sent you the photos. And he did. And I posted them on my website, which is thewaytobe.org. And if you look at the horizontal plans page, and it also has the other, you know, the Langstroth hive. It has the nuke configurations. All those prints are free and available to you. And uh, I post the pictures of those who sent me the pictures of the work that they did, if you follow my plans. And he did. They were really good. So anyway, what's your rule of thumb when to expand the hive space or move your follower board and to use a queen excluder? If not, what would the brood pattern look like with a horizontal hive? Huge, elongated, oval, and so on. Well, the horizontal hives... And there seems to be a lot of interest in them. Why wouldn't there be? They're super interesting and easy to manage. So the horizontal hives, um, I don't use queen excluders at all because I use a single entrance and my entrance is at the end of the hive, not in the middle somewhere. And the bees tend to, of course, develop their brood right near the entrance. And you might be wondering what size entrance would there be? Three eighths of an inch, 
by four inches is a pretty sweet entrance size for the horizontal hive. And in this case, we're talking about a long Langstroth hive. So the reason I didn't use queen excluder is predictably the bees keep their brood near the entrance. And as you get further from the entrance down the line, in this case, the hive is five feet long. Uh, they will, of course, transition to nothing but honey as they go. So I don't need the queen excluder. And it works really, really well. Easy to use. So the next question here was, what about the brood pattern? Brood patterns remain kind of like a basketball or a volleyball in the middle of the hive. They tend to start off kind of small, expand into full frames, and then you get a series of full frames of brood, and then it tapers back down. So it kind of looks like a basketball. And I think that holds true almost no matter what hive configuration you have. If it's big enough, they might go wall to wall in a narrow hive that's vertical. But uh, if they have the space and they can open up, it tends to be kind of a living sphere that migrates back and forth. Wintertime, it migrates towards the resources. As spring shows up, they migrate back towards the single entrance. Now, some of the horizontal hives have several entrances along their length. And that's because some people want to just go ahead and open it up in the middle where they happen to be. And then you could end up with honey on both sides if now you change the location of the entrance. That's something I don't personally do. So there you have it. And there again, if you are just getting here, if you have a question, please type in all caps. Otherwise, I'll assume that you're just saying stuff to one another. Although I have Bali Island, greetings from, I can't even say it, Dense Pasar Bali. So all in caps. So I thought it was a question. It's not. Moving on to question number two. This comes from Eric from Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's just fun to say Kalamazoo, by the way. I opened the cover of my hot tub last night and discovered about 20 dead honeybees floating in it. We had just had a warm up in the past few days, so I figured they were looking for water. What's the best approach to provide water for a out of season warm up when temps will reach freezing at night? I know the bees will come to my hot tub again, but I plan to cover the gaps in the cover to keep them from drowning themselves. I've had the bees since last spring and so on. This is a great time to talk about water. Uh, in the Northeastern United States, I know in the South, your bees are already doing everything, but we'll talk about setting up a predictable, dependable, and consistent water supply for your bees. You need to set it up early. So some people recycle old bird baths. The concrete type work really well because they have a nice um, rough surface that the bees can get their footing on. You want your water source to be consistent and easy for the bees to find. And it's one of those things you can put right near your beehives, right near your apiary. So in my case, I have a water wall, which some people have commented on my fantastic concrete block work in my yard. And it's really just stacked concrete blocks in an oval with pavers in the middle. And guess what I use? I use a fog nozzle, which I discovered last year or the year before. Fog nozzles generate a fog of water and it keeps the surfaces damp and then eventually it creates this shallow cascade. So shallow water that's consistently available for your bees um, is something that they will go to once they're conditioned to know that it's there, right? We wanna keep them out of our pools. We wanna keep them out of our neighbor's pools and in a predictable way. Now, here's one area you might think about not putting your water source for your bees, not directly in front of the flight path of your beehive, not because it's bad to have it close. It's bad because when they fly out, some of the bees eliminate right away. So then what are they doing? They're pooping in their water. So you want to put it in a place 
I did experiments, really basic backyard experiments. Some of the water was under the cover of bushes and trees. Other water was out in the open, morning sunlight specifically, and the bees went to the sunny water first. So the reason it's a great time to bring this up because you need to get it out there early. Once your bees discover water, they continue to go to it. So when your neighbors start uncovering their pools and things like that, um, it's too late. You lost them and you're going to get angry neighbors. Let me do a quick scan here. Should be 78 degrees, few days. Let's move along. Do, 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 do. What are your thoughts on the Demery method? Okay, that's from 904Bs. The Demery method, by the way, is labor intensive and it requires lifting of boxes. So I'm really glad that that was asked. It's a way of controlling, of course, swarming in spring and it works really, really well. The reason a lot of backyard beekeepers just don't do it, it's labor intensive. So guess what? I just happen to have an answer for you. It's called the Keeper's Hive. Google it, go on YouTube and look up the Keeper's Hive and you're gonna see a method for doing the Demery uh, system to control swarming and it involves nukes instead of full-size boxes except for the brood box, which is full-sized. It's kind of unique. I ran into these guys at a conference this year, last year, and uh, I actually have one that I'm gonna be trying out this year, but uh, it is a way to practice the Demery method and take kind of the labor out of it. And I think it's really effective. So please look into that for those who are listening, watching, and also of course for 904Bs, it's a great way to do that method. And here it comes from Christopher who says, Fred, can you discuss the steps of evaluating a dead out hive this time of year, your processing for inspecting, et cetera. Okay, dead outs, this is something that we are still in the game, by the way. Please do not, if you're in the Northeast United States, don't jump the gun and start tearing apart hives. I know you can feel like you're getting ahead of it, but uh, I don't do dead outs this time of year. So the other thing is assessing why they died. It becomes pretty obvious pretty early. If it's a really small cluster of bees, the variables are extensive, but you can tell a starve out pretty easily. They're at the top, there's no food, the resources all around them are consumed and you might have a couple of frames over, plenty of capped honey, but what happened is your bees got anchored over the brood or you had mites or you had a queen that failed or you had a swarm at the end of the year. So you went into the winter queen list and all they did was dwindle. So there are so many variables and dead outs are a fantastic opportunity for mentoring. And that's why if you have an experienced beekeeper who can come over and go through those with you, they are really disgusting because if you get a pile of dead bees in there, it smells like a dead animal, it's stinky. And uh, of course, have your buckets and trash bags lining the buckets so that you can dump them all in there or dump all your dead out bees into a bucket and take them over and dig a hole and make compost out of them. So there are a lot of ways to cycle those. And of course, unless you see evidence of brew disease and things like that, this is where bringing in a more experienced beekeeper comes along as handy. Uh, you can still clean and reuse the, the comb and everything else. So dead outs are... Uh, the, my process of inspecting is to look at the bees on the bottom board. Sometimes I might wash the dead bees because they died during winter and I, I can wash them out in the colander in the sink onto a coffee filter, which is in a second colander. And I find if they have a bunch of mites in there, then I know I blew it with mite control, which is probably the most common reason. The other thing is I like to dig through them and see if the queen was even there. Uh, if they were queenless, you'll see a bunch of evidence of drones that were in development, right? Because normally your bees wouldn't be building drones in the middle of winter. 
However, if they're queenless and all you have are a bunch of nurse bees that are trying to that last ditch effort to get their genetics out into the world, you see a bunch of tiny undersized, partially emerged, partially developed drone pupae, right? So that can be part of the mess, but that also lets you know you were queenless. So there's just a lot of variables. So let me look here real quick. Dave's lab. Hi, Fred. Check my bees. Top fondant a week ago. Looks like they have eaten most of the pack. Should I replace it with a new pack? I'm located near Lake Erie, PA. Yes, here's what I do for Dave's lab. Um, if they're two-thirds done, so if you had a fondant pack, let's say I had one handy that I could show you. And this is Hive Alive fondant. If it were consumed two-thirds, you have a big circle here, and then you see, you'll see corners that are still full of fondant, right? What would I do if I saw that right now? I'd pull it out, I'd put the new one in, and of course, I would lay the open one right on the ground in front of the hive and let the rest of the bees still get out and go after it. What time of day would I do that? Late afternoon, why? If I did this early in the morning on a day when it's gonna be warm, I could invite robbers in my apiary. If we're at this time of day, four, after 4 p.m., it's a great time to take it out and put them out there, put the new pack on, let these bees find their way back to the hive. So yes, I would swap it out. As cheap as these are, absolutely. And they're working really well. I'm not even gonna get to question two here. Okay, let's see what else it says. Freddie Benjamin, a few episodes ago, you mentioned viewing pollen under your microscope. What are you looking for? Are you doing to make a vid? Am I going to make a vid about it? Okay, did not make a vid about it, but here's the thing. It's very easy to see if something is just dust and detritus from cornmeal from production. In this case, it was black oil sunflower seeds, and there were little bits and pieces of sunflower seed shells. That's what it was. If you look at pollen, it's very difficult, by the way, to identify the specific pollen source. There are experts for doing that, and they're working on AI, big surprise for identifying pollen now, which could speed things up a lot, but that's different from, is it pollen? That's very easy. What did the pollen come from once you identify that? Very challenging. So just to, telling the difference between pollen, which is spherical, it looks like tiny BBs in some cases, some of them look like grapes, some of them are spiky, some of them are kind of smooth. It's distinctive that it is a plant pollen and not just a piece of sawdust or a piece of cornmeal or something else like that, or some scraping from the shell of the black oil sunflower seed. Very easy to tell those differences. So that's what we do. And, and for those that are wondering, the bees were all over the bird feeder and it was not pollen. Now, later you see a bunch of birds at the bird, a bunch of bees at the bird feeder going nuts because I did put some pollen stuff in it. Bad mistake don't do it. I didn't think ahead. The bees were all over that again today, looking for the pollen that's no longer there, by the way, and uh, driving off my bees and my birds. So the wild birds couldn't come to the feeders. Bees are all over the sunflower seeds, even on the ground. So big mistake, don't put dry pollen sub in your bird feeders unless the bird feeder is your pollen sub feeder. If it's for the birds, it won't be once your honeybees kick in. So that was a big mistake. Don't do it. Was not pollen. Easy to tell the difference between pollen, not pollen. Okay. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Mostly consumed patties. I collect them and rip open and take all the corners and roll into smaller patties and put in Ziploc bags. Then I use them on swarms and splits for easy feed. 
that's the other thing, leftover pollen, um, leftover fondant packs. This stuff liquefies really easily. So you can actually, if you're making mixing up syrup for swarm kicking off and splits and things like that, you can mix that right in with your sugar syrup and it dissolves really fast. So you don't necessarily lose it. Okay, Freddie Benjamin wants to know, did I take it out of the cells? So we're talking about pollen. No, I did not. Pollen is like a little shell, like a tiny coconut. And, you know, the pollen itself, the proteins are inside this thing, which, you know, that's a whole nother thing. I don't have the ability to shell pollen. So no, just the exterior is all I'm looking at. I'm going to go ahead and jump on one of these. Uh, next question is number three. Comes from Tom from Olympia, Washington. Hey, Fred. In the not-too-distant past, you spoke about borage as a floral source for the bees. I haven't heard it mentioned for quite a while. Is there a reason that you've stopped planting borage? Okay, so here's the thing. I mentioned borage because we have an expert, we have an expert in our bee club who uh, is fantastic with perennials, and she constantly recommends borage. Borage is a really good plant, so I'm going to talk a little bit about it. And this is a good time to be discussing it because a lot of you are planning your spring plantings. If you're going to do fields as I do, then you need to think ahead. I'm also starting a bunch of uh, seedlings inside, which will be starting next week. So it's already time to get the inside stuff going. Borage is really good. So I want to tell you a few things about it. Uh, borage is one of those plants that continually produces nectar in what part of the plant? The nectaries, which is kind of cool. So the bees and other pollinators visit it. And so every two to three minutes, it's refreshing it. So the bees and other pollinators come back and constantly visit the plant, which of course improves its pollination. It's a cold weather uh, plant also. So late in the year when other plants or other flowers are closing up and cold weather is shutting them down, forage continues to be available to pollinators. It has a very long bloom cycle. And here's the part that a lot of people don't like and why probably you don't see it everywhere. And borage is not nature, uh, not native to the United States. It comes from Syria and Turkey. Uh, but it is present here, has been here for a long time. Fantastic pollinator plant, but a lot of people get fixated on pollinating uh, or setting out pollination gardens just for our birds and our bees and other insects. Even wasps come and pollinate flowers, but they also want to work just with uh, natives. So if you're not locked in on dealing with only natives. Keep in mind, by the way, even the dandelion is not a native plant. So they're very good for pollinators, high on the list, really good stuff. Look into it if you don't have them already. And uh, I'm focused on hyssop right now. And some people think, well, you're setting up a monoculture. I'm not because I already have all of the other native wildflowers in my fields. So I'm boosting them with hyssop because I personally like it. And uh, blue giant hyssop was fantastic uh, just because it was so tall. And I like to take pictures of it. And if you're taking pictures of honeybees on flowers, hyssop turns out to be really good because you don't bend over at all. You stand right there, you walk up to them, and there they are. And it's a great nectar plant. So you satisfy the desire to have a plant that's native and also one that has a very long bloom cycle and continues to bloom and provide for your bees and other pollinators right into fall. I have hyssop outside on the deck right now. I just wanted to keep close. So it's in one of those half barrel planters. Half of the leaves on it are still green. 
that stuff is cold hardy. So, uh, oh, I want to answer this question here from Brian Baker Bees. It says, given that the bees move honey, can the ingredients in Hive Alive get in my honey? Would it be bad for us to eat? So here's the thing. We don't put any supplemental feeding on any hive that has a honey super on it that's going to be consumed for people. So part of this question is knowing that they move these resources around. Uh, so this isn't one that they're going to move around. Uh, when it comes to the fondant, when you see the bees behavior, when they're consuming fondant, they're consuming it. In other words, they're consuming the fondant, metabolizing it, and they do something called trophallaxis. That means the bee that was up getting into the fondant might go halfway down in the hive. And this is evident in observation hives. And you'll see another bee come up, extend their tongue, and then they'll get fed from this bee. What I don't see them doing is taking fondant resources and migrating those into the cells, into the frames. So what we're doing is failing safe by making sure there's no reason to be feeding it once your honey supers are on anyway, because when do your honey supers go on? When there's plenty of forage already out there. So fondant for me personally is only a winter emergency resource. And when it comes time when you're starting to build your hives and you're starting to add honey supers, all your fondant should be off, all of it. Take it out, get rid of it. So that's it. Uh, let me keep going here a second. And hello to you, those of you who are just joining us and you probably did not get the word. Um, if you have a question for me, please type it in all caps. That way I'll notice that it's a question rather than just this group talking amongst themselves in the chat. So we get on to question number five, which comes from Vladimir in Worcester, Mass. It's spelled Worcester, Worcester, but I think it's Worcester is the way you say it. I'd like to catch any swarms from my hives before they cause trouble by, for example, going into the neighbor's soffit. Is there any way to attract my swarms to a bivouac in one of my own trees instead of my neighbor's trees? Would putting up a swarm trap in my yard catch swarms before they bivouac? Okay, first of all, let me address the one part here. Catch swarms before they bivouac. All colonies, all queens that are leaving a hive with bees bivouac somewhere. There's no direct flight to a cavity that they move into. So they will always bivouac. In some cases, the bivouac could be right on the front of the beehive. And there are a lot of ways that you can tell that that's a bivouac and not just a bunch of bees bearding on the front of a hive. But you can attract them to a specific tree in your yard, a specific fence post or some other sheltered area. And you do that by establishing pheromones on that branch, right? So you can do that by melting down and making a bunch of um, glob a bunch of honey, wax, propolis, and everything together, and you can make like a putty with it, and you can actually put that on a tree. I have all these updates popping up on my computer. How annoying. Anyway, so you create a beeswax smell and a pheromone smell that comes from queens and the queen mandibular pheromone, and you try to get that onto a tree branch or some other area that's suitable, a thick enough branch that your bees can hang off of it. That's what the bivouac is, intermediate location. But I've done this and I've established that by using temp queen, which is a synthetic queen mandibular pheromone. And I buy mine from betterbee.com. And uh, five bucks, keep it in the freezer. It's a little transparent green noodle. 
and you zip tie that onto a tree branch and that puts a queen pheromone on there. So for some reason, bees, once they know other bees have clustered on a branch before, tend to reuse it. So you can establish that pheromone and create a place that's favorable to them. And this is why often once we get going, you'll be collecting a swarm within a couple of feet on the same branch every time. <laughs> so every time bees swarm out, they'll just recollect on those tree branches over and over. And then you don't have to refresh the pheromone yourself because other swarms with their queen are refreshing it. And if some of them stay on the branch for a while and start to make beeswax and things like that, which did not happen last year, the bees were bivouacking for very short amounts of time. But you're creating a place that smells good to bees, that bees have been there before. And so they just follow that. It's not 100%, but remarkably consistent. The other thing is you mentioned you'd like to keep bees out of your neighbor's soffits and things like that. I highly recommend that you inform all of your neighbors to tuck point, check places where there's gaps in the soffit, gaps where bricks meet wood and things like that. Uh, make sure they're sealed up. You do not want to be the person that's responsible for a swarm moving into one of your neighbor's houses. Now, I was lucky. I have a neighbor on the top of the hill, thousand yards out. Uh, one of my swarms, of course, went and moved in under his porch, but he actually liked having him there. So win-win. And they did not survive winter. So there was that part. And what else here? Let's see. Honey can have ingredients. Hive Live getting honey. Okay. Yeah, don't worry about Hive Live getting in your honey. Catch worms before they bivouac. The other thing is, uh, one of my favorite things last year for collecting swarms was the empty hives. So someone mentioned earlier about dead outs. What will we do with them? Once you clean them up, once you get the stuff out of there and you clean the frames out, get the dead bees out, evaluate it, make sure it wasn't dead from a disease, brood disease specifically, uh, you keep that stuff all together, especially those brood frames. And of course, you're going to pack it down. It's going to be a single deep box. I had very good luck with bees going into those, even without removing those boxes from the apiary. So it was a lazy man's swarm collection process. Now, sure, there are statistics that show that bees will move 250 yards out. That's a prime distance from your apiary to be moving into another box after the bivouac stage. And I found that um, they were moving right in, right into boxes. Now, maybe those weren't even my bees, but the one for sure was because I saw them bivouacked on my tree. They left the tree, they went into the hive, not 20 feet away from where the tree was. So your old colonies that your hives that had colonies in them are swarm magnets, which is different from getting them to bivouac on a temporary spot. So I hope I made that difference clear. Question number six comes from Jed from Northeast Mississippi. Which observation do you consider to be the best that you've evaluated so far? Would like to get one. Wait a second. I skipped a word. Which observation hive is the best so far? Would like to get one this year. Observation hives are a lot of fun, a lot of work, and you they tend to be swarm generators. Mine do anyway. The good news is all of my observation hives, this is the second year in a row, 100% of my observation hives are making it. It's a feel-good moment. But I, rather than talk about the specific observation hive that does the best, in other words, you know, does horizontal bees make the best? Does Bonterra bees make the best observation hives? 
I'd rather talk with you about what traits the hives should have, what features they should have, and uh, that will kind of get you in the zone for what kind of observation hive is likely to work. And I also want to talk about a few things there. If you notice your observation hives, bigger tends to be better. Um, so I've got a really, my largest observation hive was made by Ricky Rourke of Horizontal Bees. And it was featured down there at Hive Life. So not last January, the January before. And uh, he built it to my specs. It's a huge hive. So it is, it has deep frames in it, four high and in groups of three. That's a lot. So when you're stocking a hive like that, you should actually migrate an entire, like if you had a 10 frame deep box that's full of bees, all brooding up, all doing great, those are candidates for stocking that observation hive and filling most of those frames. If you're going to get a swarm or you're working from a nucleus hive or something like that, a big observation hive like that isn't going to be fantastic. And it's because there's so much extra space in there that for some reason your bees slow down. And I follow the same rules that I do with my other hives, single entrance, reduce the entrance. And then uh, of course you start your bees, your frames of brood right near that entrance. And then they're supposed to build out the rest of the hive. So it took two years for them to fill out some of the larger hives. So you can stock them up. If I were designing a hive right now, an observation hive, I would have some kind of removable panel in there or a spacer board or kind of like a follower board that we use in horizontal hives, but I would have it insert vertically so I could fill, you know, the bottom two, that would be six deep frames. Wait until those are full, then pull that out and open the next level. And the reason I like to have them in triplets, triple frames, is because now we've got that center frame with bees on both sides, shielded by outer frames, and they're in unheated spaces. So that's important to distinguish because my observation hives are in an unheated building. Uh, when they have three frames to work with, they take care of themselves perfectly. So I'm excited about those. The thing is they fill up. You can't expand them beyond whatever size you happen to have. And uh, so they're going to build up and of course cycle out. The other thing is I took what's called blast gates. Blast gates are used in wood shops and they're used to collect sawdust and things like that, right? So I have aluminum blast gates mounted on the side of my observation hives. Each one of them has it. It's above the first level of frames and below the next level of frames. So the blast gate goes right in the middle. What's that for? If I ever need to introduce a replacement queen, I open up the blast gate, I slide the queen in her cage right in there, close it up, and it's a translucent cylinder. So I can see how the bees react to that queen, and I can see the queen, the candy gets chewed out, the queen migrates out, they're feeding her through the screen, all is good. If it were going bad, I can pull it right out again. And uh, it's a fantastic way to introduce queens and things like that to your hive. So the blast gate is something else that I added. I never saw it anywhere else. And uh, these are great things to have. So. The size of the hive matters. I wouldn't go smaller than three levels. I wouldn't go smaller than three levels of triplets. So now we've got nine frames mediums and you would have nine frames deeps would be the next. And I like four levels. And that seems to be big enough, by the way, if you go four levels, you can actually get a decent cycle going through there without them swarming out if you pay attention and you make sure that they don't build queen cells and things like that. So let me just check here real quick. Uh, right here, somebody says, have we been shown that hive in your videos yet? No, huge secret, classified. 
not shown. That's the Ricky Rourke hive. A lot of things are happening with observation hives this year. I like to wait sometimes because I've done enough videos showing how to set up an observation hive, how to stock your observation hive, how the bees behave when you load them into it. That groundwork is done as far as instructional videos go. So I'm waiting until things work because I don't want to say, yeah, check it out in three months and we'll find out if this worked. It's going to be a start to finish show everything in one video, uh, how well it's working. So what else? Do, 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 do. Let me get on with this. So the best observation hive, those are the features. The best one I've had made, of course, goes without question to Ricky Rourke, horizontal bees, but he makes horizontal hives. He doesn't care about observation hives. If Brian's here from uh, Castle Hives, he got one too after I got mine. So let's move on to question number seven. David here from Amelia, Ohio says uh, this year will be year two of keeping bees. I currently have three colonies and I'm building and switching to all lands style equipment from traditional Langstroth hives. I've read that horizontal style hives produce less honey. Have you found this to be the case with yours or have you come across any research that confirms that given the same conditions and replacing full frames in the horizontal with drawn comb with stop, what stops them from producing the same amount? Okay, for the horizontal versus vertical hive honey manufacturing groups, no difference. So my horizontal hives, uh, just to give you an example, Long Langstroth hive last year, I did increase my insulation on that. So the winter before, we're going back two winters. Uh, we increased insulation on the horizontal hive. Cover boards uh, are oak boards, and that is the stopping point. There's the back of the frames. There's bee space above that. There's oak cover boards above those, and then it's all solid. So no air is passing through there because it propolized everything. So then I created a double bubble gasket. So when I closed the lid down, there's a gasket around the whole thing that didn't exist before. Therefore, there was some air movement through there. Also, I beefed up the insulation on the roof itself. So in other words, um, we really locked it down as far as insulation went. That improved wintering. It also reduced the amount of resources that the bees consumed through winter. Single entrance, one end of the hive, which was the southeast facing entrance, and nothing else. Now, we ended up with, yeah, 10 deep frames of uh, capped honey. So the other thing was the population was big in it. So we created three colonies out of that. So I had people that I was mentoring. We took uh, resources of brood and everything else out of there, a couple of frames of honey. So it becomes a working resource hive for us uh, because there, again, we can't expand it anymore. So whatever size your horizontal hive is, that's what you're stuck with. This is why I was in a pickle when I got my lay-ins hives from Dr. Leo Sharashkin. And uh, because they, they're finite, you know, you can't add like you can with a Langstroth. You've seen these people sitting in front of a Langstroth hive with 20 stack boxes on it. That's never going to happen in my bee yard ever. But uh, the horizontal hives, uh, you end up pulling the resources as you go through the year because you can no longer expand it. My lay-ins hives filled up wall to wall. Bees and resources too fast. And I had to get another lay-ins hive. That filled up. And I even underdogged it really bad. I only put three frames, lay-ins frames in it. And uh, they took off. 
and the follower board, that ability to control the space and to advance your follower board when they're down to just a couple of free frames left, move the follower board. And of course, the resources right there, you pull the other frames out and you migrate them onto the other side of your follower board. And now it closes up. There is nothing more convenient to manage than a horizontal hive. They are the easiest, whether it's a long Langstroth or a Lands, makes no difference. They're easy to manage. Now, when it comes to the Lands frames full of honey, those things are heavy. Uh, Langstroth, Long Lang is more compatibility with equipment. So I will say this, even though I like the Lands hives, nothing against them. Uh, as I expand my apiary, that particular field uh, is going to have long Langstroth hives. Just because material compatibility, I can pull frames. I can use that as a resource. I can get frames for my other Langstroth hives and uh, back and forth. Some people start with lands and they have only lands. So now they don't have any compatibility issues. However, most of the people building equipment for bees are building it for Langstroth style frames, mediums and deeps. There are shallows also. But uh, when it comes to your long Langstroth, compatibility, easy going, just, you know, it works with all the other stuff if you've already started. But as far as one producing more honey than another, haven't found that to be true. Could not find a study that demonstrated that that was true. All of the information was anecdotal. What's anecdotal? That's a bunch of people sitting around going, well, my vertical hives outperform anybody anybody's horizontal hive. Well, how many horizontal hives do you have? I don't have any. I only have vertical hives because of the top performers. Then you have horizontal people and top bar hive people saying it's better for the bees. They work better because they're more comfortable. They're more relaxed. They like their environment. Therefore, they're more productive. See what happens? Opinions. So I have both. And I see no difference. Ed Spees, what's he saying? How can you feed fondant in an observation hive? I don't feed fondant in an observation hive. I just don't. However, if I really needed to, I would open up that blast gate, I would make a glob, I would reshape it, and I would stick it through that hole, and I would close that up and leave it off to the side. It's not great for them. My observation hives do not get their honey harvested. Therefore, the whole top six frames in that hive are full of capped honey. That's it. And the other thing is... Um, I put hot pockets over them. So hot pockets are just double bubble. You make it like a pillowcase, put it over the whole thing. Remember, they're in an unheated building. None of them have run out of resources. Now, in an emergency situation, let's go there. If you have an observation hive, I don't put fondant in there. So if I have the observation hive and we get these warm-ups like it's coming this week, if I find that they're starving, if I look in that observation hive and they're completely out of resources, I'm going to put heavy syrup on top of that because there are openings in the top that you can open and close and you invert a jar and put it on there. Take it away at night so it doesn't sit there overnight and then warm up the next day and then leak down without any prompting by the bees. So there are, you know, flaws with that. You can't feed fondant. That's a good example there. So if you were designing your hive and being able to feed fondant or having some kind of removable tray that you could slide it in from the side and put that directly over the brood somewhere, that might be interesting, but the problem is they tend to build up comb in every space inside the hive. So when you leave these utility spaces available to the bees, they mess it up for you. So those are just examples of how the bees, that's the whole purpose of the observation hive to some degree, see how the bees manage the space and see how they make it on their own. They really do. So other than syrup in an emergency, when the day is warm enough to feed syrup, that's all I do. I don't feed fondant. 
Let's go into, so what did I do? Cross recharge, I can print that. Okay, that's it. I'm sure people in the comment section have opinions about horizontal versus vertical and one having more honey than another. Let's look at this all capital comment here by Steve White. What are the challenges of running double deep nukes with 10 frame medium supers on them? Okay, so let's see. Double deep nukes with 10 frame medium supers on them. I think that's where you're, if you're talking about the nukes running them side by side and then having a 10 frame medium super on top of that, I haven't done it. So I'll leave that alone. I haven't tested that at all. My nucleus uh, hives are standalones. They don't have these different box sizes. So I don't double them up and bind them together. I think... Um, Maybe we're talking about people up in Vermont that do that. Michael Palmer does some of that combining. I don't personally do that. So my uh, nucleus hives are five frame. I also have a six frame Lysen that can be stacked. And I have the seven frame Apamaze that can be stacked. And this is also, we can make comparisons about how they use the space. But uh, I haven't tried the full size box with nukes doubled up over them and i haven't tried the double up nukes with a full size box on top of them so that would be a two colony i'm guessing um but i just haven't done it so i can't speak about that with direct experience so uh that's it for that part again if anyone has a question for me type it in all caps what else this question comes from mark from King O'Roy, Queensland, Australia. Oh man, I probably butched that. It says, hello, Fred. As we in Australia are coming to terms with the introduction of Varroa mites, it begs the question of treatments. I gather is not a lot of information around about approved treatments for Australia. My question is, what do you think about mineral oil fogging? My thinking is it's non-toxic, and shouldn't need me to remove my flow hive supers. Okay. And I am going to talk about the mineral oil fogging system and fogging in general too. But I think that people got on the thought line here in the United States as well. So the first thing we have to do is say, uh, whoever the governing body is there in Australia, in whatever part of Australia you're in, they're going to control what you're allowed to use to control varroa destructor mites because it becomes a miticide. And a lot of growers and people have used um, mineral oil fogging in place of some of the pesticides or insecticides, and they've used it on trees. And I think that's probably where this got started. Somebody said non-toxic, you spray down your trees with it. Um, it's going to kill the pests around the trees because Mineral oil gets on their bodies, blocks up their spiracles, suffocates the insects, aphids, things like that, kills them. And a great way to disperse that mineral oil was with a fogger. So for the, and this is why this is important for me to get this out and to answer Mark, although I can't give advice to anybody in Australia about what you're allowed to use here in the United States. We also have limitations on what we're allowed to use as a miticide. But I did go the extra yard because I did a couple of Google look arounds and find that people are recommending mineral oil fogging. And that's why I think it's important to get this word out. 
Mineral oil fogging is not an effective treatment against varroa mites in beehives. So we're going to start right there. Multiple studies. So this isn't just one person's opinion. These are studies done by multiple entities and governing bodies, right? So the United States Department of Agriculture have found that mineral oil fogging largely ineffective in controlling varroa mites. In fact, some studies, so not all of them, but some studies have shown that it may even be harmful to the bees. Other studies demonstrated that it damaged the queen. Keep in mind, you're fogging an oil in there, you're hoping to suffocate things. So if you're trying to kill a mite through suffocation, then you also run the risk of suffocating your bees and putting an oil on them that they really can't get rid of. So here are some reasons why mineral oil fogging is not an effective treatment for varroa mites. It does not kill the mites. So the mineral oil is thought to work by smothering the mites, but it's not effective at penetrating the mites' respiratory openings. So for bees, those are the spiracles that go into the trachea, that go into the tracheals. So you run the risk of suffocating also your bees if you put enough in it to kill the mites. So if you're just fogging with mineral oil, it might just be a feel-good thing, and you're not actually killing the mites, and you haven't got the levels up enough to kill the mites, which would also then jeopardize your bees. I hope you understand what I'm saying. And it can harm the bees. Mineral oil can irritate the bees' respiratory systems, may even be harmful to the queen bee. It can contaminate your honey. So mineral oil can leave a residue on the bees and in the hive, which can contaminate honey. So this is these are separate opinion pieces and some are studies, right? So now it's a study. Efficacy of mineral oil treatments for controlling varroa destructor mites and honeybees, Apis mellifera colonies by Robert G. Donka and others. Uh, the study published in the journal Apidology investigated the effectiveness and potential negative impacts of mineral oil on bee health and honey quality. The study found that mineral oil was not effective in controlling varroa mites, also found evidence of negative impacts on brood development and honey quality. So I leave it to the rest of you to do a deeper dive if you want to, but on the face of it, it's a method that's not approved for controlling mites or delivering a miticide. Mineral oil is not listed as a miticide. So just right in the very beginning, please go with the things that are approved, that have been tested, and that are effective. You'll hear the term efficacy. So that just means how effective it was at destroying the pests that you're trying to get rid of. So it's a pesticide and mineral oil is not approved or listed. And there are lots of reasons why you shouldn't do it. So let's see what else we have. Uh, Papa Z's bees, my four hives, made it through winter so far. Feeding them hive alive fondant, my two flow hives are into their second fondant pack. My warm, let's see, warm today in Northeast Oklahoma, 70 degrees today. It was 83 on Wednesday. Good for all of you with all your super warm weather. Tanks in space. I like that name. Hello. What's your opinion on buckfast bees? They are popular in my European country, but not in the U.S. That's because buckfast bees um, uh, from buckfast Abbey is where they came from. And uh, Brother Adam is the name of the monk that worked with those. And uh, they're great bees. So there are derivatives here, but I don't know of any breeder right now that has 100% pure Buckfast stock. Even the Buckfast Abbey, I believe they have very limited stock available. So I was talking with Daniel Weaver down at uh, Novus Soda, Texas, and that's uh, Bee Weaver Bees. 
early on, they were working with uh, the Bugfast bees as part of their genetic lineup to make the bee weaver bees that they have today. So I don't know right now. You're right. They're fantastic bees. Uh, I don't know of anybody that sells a true, uh, genetically true Buckfast queen here in the United States. We have Carniolans that run that do a lot of similar things. Saskatraz uh, is being promoted a lot from Canada. And uh, of course, um, we have Russian bees, dark bees that are also performing really well. So people are looking for hygienic bees, good survivor stock. And uh, for some reason, I don't see Buckfast listed a lot. I can't explain why it didn't take off, although I think the genetic pool uh, for sourcing those is pretty small. So let's see. What else? Any other questions? I'm missing stuff. Because I've covered all the questions that I needed to respond to today. So I'm at the end of things. If you have a discussion, if you have something you'd like me to comment on or you want me to share, this is your time to put that out. So MMB says, I prefer Black Bee AMM. They are as hard as nails. We're lucky to have lots of these in our area here in my region of Scotland. I can say this, um, cycling my own bees back over the last 17, 18 years now, uh, right where I live and only sparsely bringing in new stock from time to time. And I always source hygienic uh, stock when I buy in a queen from somewhere because I want to support those breeding programs. But my stock has become much darker. Like I have a lot more very dark queens, uh, dark black and umber color tones in their abdomens. So just visibly looking at them, I don't know because I can't run a genome test. I can't see what their genetics actually are. But overall, they're just getting darker all the time. Um, this is from Suzanne. It says, question, have you ever tried two brood breaks in one season? If so, any effect on Varroa? So here's the thing. When we do brood breaks, yeah, one of the things that we're doing to force brood breaks, this also, I'm glad that question was asked because the person that was trying to control and talked about the Demeray method and things like that, controlling swarming, making brood breaks, of course, reduces reproductive opportunities for the varroa destructor mites. I also like the queen cages that we now have so we can limit the queen to one or two frames so we don't completely lose production and we can keep the queen in the hive. But now we won't have four or five frames of brood. And uh, so you can keep them reduced during that time uh, when swarming is at a high. So this reduction of brood also reduces and gives you an opportunity then to treat only that queen cage. So we can let the queen build up her brood. This is a double queen isolation cage. You can use these any way you want. They're super practical, but once you find your queen on a frame, this is obviously not a frame of brood because it's just a frame. But if your queen was on a brood frame and this was full of eggs and open larvae and things like that, you can put her inside here with her bees. So now we've limited them to two out of a 10 frame box, let's say. This lid goes on. All the brood is here. The rest of this, whatever brood that you had out there would finish off. So if they were in the pupa state, they would emerge from their cells and they would go about their business. Worker bees can go in and out of this frame through this cage. Now we have them isolated in here. 
So once you find that all of your open brood is done, and once these are all covered, then you have to wait for these to emerge to treat them. So now you can move this into a nuke. The other thing is if you can get them in here when she's just laying eggs and nothing's capped yet, you got to move fast because we're talking eight days. Then you can put your queen on cells, frames that have nothing but cells, use them as your varroa magnets before they cap them. You can give them an oxalic acid vaporization treatment, 96% effective if they're exposed. There are lots of ways you can time brood production in these and isolate your queen, reduce the brood, reduce swarming. So it's a tool for backyard beekeepers that don't need all those bees. But it also, anytime there's a brood break, you can pull your queen out. There's a single isolation cage too. You can pull your queen out, put her again on just a bunch of drawn comb, let her start laying her eggs. We know that there are three or 4,000 eggs to be laid on each side of a single deep frame. And so that gives you enough time to occupy her over there. And then all the brood emerge from the, the box that you got her out of. And then you can, again, once they're all exposed, oxalic acid vaporization partnered with a brood break, which is when oxalic acid vaporization works the best. So uh, have you ever caged your queens? This is from JK Photography. Yeah, I just, just mentioned it. I caged the queens. So now a lot of this has to do first, though, with what I'm finding if I do a varroa mite count. The other thing is we're playing with drones. I did not have a lot of uh, luck playing with drones last year, but I learned about using drones to serve as Varroa destructor mite magnets, those newly emerged drones. So this is different from using the drones in the pupa state to enclose, capture, and keep Varroa destructor mites, and of course, getting rid of those. Uh, we can get them onto the bodies of the drones. Drones can't pass through these queen cages either. So if we have frames of drones in there, the drones emerge, and within three days, varroa destructor mites that are phoretic or in their dispersal phase inside that hive have been demonstrated to be attracted to the bodies of those drones. And then we can pull those out and do what? Oxalic acid vaporization and nail those drones and get all the varroa destructor mites off of them. There are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot going on. Dr. Zachary Lamas, look up that interview, please. And you'll learn more about why that works and what the mechanism is. He had never heard of these cages at the time we did the interview. So now those are implemented in his work also. Fantastic cages. Uh, what else are we doing? I have a question near the beginning of the chat. That's Patricia. Oh, at the beginning of the chat. Is there a timestamp for that? Let me see. Question at the beginning, Patricia is a purple P. Let me look for that. Yeah, mill about smartly. I'm looking for, let's see, it says 112 beekeepers went into the water that night. What are we talking? Oh, that's not. That's somebody else. P. There's a lot of comments in here, people. Sorry for the dead air. If you're listening to the podcast, I can't find it. If you could post the question again, I know that's redundant and I'm sorry about that. 
Let's look at Freddie Benjamin. What lens do you use to take a photo of your landing board? What's the millimeter f-stop ISO that you recommend? This is going to bore people to tears, but the landing board, uh, pictures photo that I take of my landing board. Um, that's a very generic question. Um, I do use the, the most, I'm going to talk about the most used lens, the um, micro macro 105 millimeter f 2.8 is the lens that's the standard nikon um, macro lens it's a fixed focal length so it is 105 and uh, they also made it for the z series cameras so i use it also with the z9 and i use it with the d5 and uh, so forth and it's making everybody very excited but you can stop it down to f10 and uh, even more so just so that you get that depth of field in there because we're talking about live bees. So when they're moving around and that's it, high sunshine, you know, maximum light so that I can get a decent speed out of it. The exciting part of some of the newer cameras like the mirrorless cameras is I can shoot faster. We're limited to one eight thousandth of a second for bee movement on the landing boards. Um, if I get into the Z9, I can get all the way up to one thirty-two thousandth of a second, which means I have to shoot it wide open. I have to bring in multiple strobes to do that, and uh, which I can do because they're high-speed sync uh, flashes by Nikon. And uh, so we can do that. But uh, it's it's all over the chart because it depends on a lot of variables. If I'm videoing, then that's a whole different thing. Also, Leowa makes a really good series of lenses and they make that micro macro which is a 5x micro lens and they make it for all makes canon nikon you know i don't know what else is still out there yashica mamaya Rolleiflex, whatever you can get they custom make lenses they're fantastic and they're all manual focus so those are the ones that get really tight the closer you get to the bees the more challenging your um shot's going to be on live bees because they're going to move around a lot and uh it's just a lot of fun and it's potluck. The other thing is I will share a, a tip that I have. So if I have a lens element here, this is a front element, camera's back here, and I have a fixed focal distance from the front element of the lens. I'll rubber band a stick like this is a chopstick, but it can be a toothpick or anything else. This is of course out of the field of view for the shot, but it allows you, if you focus at this distance, Put that on there. Now you can hold the camera away from yourself and you can get it right on your subject. And so the B would be right here and you can do that without looking through the viewfinder and get the shot. And then get into what's known as prey and spray, which means just take a whole bunch of pictures and hope that one of those was in focus and got the shot that you wanted. So that's enough of that. And we're moving along and I am happy to talk about um, bees and photography and videography and things like that. Some of the equipment that I use is so um, specific. So Paul says, can a flash damage the bee's eyes? No, it can't. We're not generating anywhere near enough light to damage the eyes of a bee. So for example, we're not exceeding the light provided by the sun. Um, and flash studies have been done, by the way, and I know this is a bee forum, but uh, Babies, you photograph babies and we have flashes and strobes that go off in little babies' eyes and they, their heads shudder and their pupils dilate and they shrink and, and could it damage their eyes? And those studies have been done that it does not. So bees are far more durable than that. 
Um, to, to do another person says, Fred, you have a recipe for homemade antidote for stings. I just use sting kill. I don't, you know, I don't have anything that I make myself. Sting kill is out there. And, uh, Keith Spellman says, Hey Fred, I still have my RCA VHS camcorder. If you need to borrow it, you know, thank you for that kind offer. I still remember the first camcorder I bought. I got it from the Tokyo Expo in the Western Pacific. There was a Panasonic and the VHS camera sat on your shoulder and the recording unit was hanging off to the side here and there's an umbilical connecting it. Glad those days are gone because that was really lame stuff. In comparison, you know, that was back in 1985 I bought that. So anyway, nobody cares. We are talking about other things. Let's see. Somebody says, add super sticky tape to hive legs, trap them, ants, and maybe some Damascus Damascus earth on the ground around the hive. I think we mean diatomaceous earth, D-E. Uh, Damascus is a place. Unless Fred has a better suggestion. What are we trying to kill? What are we doing? My nine-year-old granddaughter has been with me since she was three. Watch you periodically. She would like to know what you got into. Your what? Oh, nine-year-old granddaughter has been keeping bees with me since she was three. We watch you periodically. She would like to know what got you into beekeeping. I keep bees. I'm just going to tell you the reason that I keep them. I keep bees so that they're handy, so that they're right here, so I can stare at them, so I can study them, so I can photograph them and learn about them. The fact that I can have them right here. Historically on my property, whenever I've needed to study something, I raised it right here, which included things like the Australian emu, which we hatch from eggs, 51 days of incubation. So instead of going to an emu farm to photograph them and see their stages of growth and development, we kept them right here. I was really excited to find out in 2006 that I could keep bees on my own property in a box, see them go out in the environment, and then I could go there, photograph, learn about, study, document, video, and that landed me here with you all today. So it's actually born out of a, an intense interest in wanting to know more about the bees. That is still my motivation is to learn something every day. And now it's cycled around to where it's become a source of information that I can share with other people. And of course, the videos and photography, that becomes my witness. Did that really happen? Yeah. Watch the video. Thank you, YouTube, because that is a great thing. So Lisa says, hi, Fred, black Menorca chickens doing great in hobby farm in Arkansas. Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, for those of you, by the way, chickens and bees, fantastic companion animals. Uh, the chickens go through, Menorcas are fantastic. They're outside today. They're in the woods in a team digging up leaves and eating all the little bugs and things under them. So it's a Mediterranean breed. If you're looking to get into chickens and uh, they're a little skittish, so if you're trying to turn your chickens into pets, these won't be the ones. But uh, they're intense foragers and uh, they can fly. They can get away from stuff. They're alert. The roosters know what's going on. A fox shows up, has no chance of catching a menorca. They uh, fly all the way to the coop. They go to the rooftop. They can escape. So these are great chickens. So I'm glad that you had good luck with those. They are good. If somebody's looking for a place to source those, I recommend Murray McMurray Hatchery, rare breed hatchery. And just like how we support those who breed good bees by spending our dollars to pick up a queen every now and again, I highly recommend that we support really good hatcheries. I'm friends with the Strongberg families who are also poultry people. 
and uh, Murray McMurray just so that we can keep them in business, maintaining and uh, keeping stock for those rare breeds. So it's really fantastic. Uh, somebody else said honey works great on bee stings. And uh, somebody said that they're afraid that ants will go into the hive. If your hives are on stands like metal legs on stands, right? So T-posts or things like that. You can take gel toothpaste and rub it on the legs of your hive stand. If you're sitting on the ground, there's nothing I can do for you. But uh, you can uh, rub toothpaste on the legs. Ants are like bees. Bees are related to ants, by the way, other social insects. They won't cross that uh, toothpaste barrier. They just don't like it. The smell is too aggressive for them. So... What's it say? What are the best steps and timeline to replace a queen from hell? Excuse me, I did not just say that. H double hockey sticks, seven, seven, three, four, inverted and backwards, as we used to say when I was 12. Best steps and timeline to replace a queen from hell. Well, the timeline, if it's a warm enough day for them to be flying and attacking you, put on your bee suit right there. That's an emergency bee smock. Um, this is also, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that. If you come into spring and you've got bees from Hades and you've got a queen that's producing offspring, they're just going to attack every moving thing. Um, you need to have a really good bee suit because you need to go in there and deal with the queen and you need to find her and get her and take her out. Depending on the level of defensiveness of that hive, you may have to take the entire hive out. What would I recommend? If you've got an entire colony waging war on the mailman, the UPS, FedEx, everybody else are trying to attack, two tablespoons of Dawn Ultra Free and Clear dish detergent per gallon of water in one of those garden sprayers. Pump it up, go in there, and you can spray them, and it will take them out like that. Plus, it's environmentally friendly. It does not contaminate your land. It'll take the bees out. If you can narrow her down to one frame, like you can't grab her because she's too ridiculous and too scooty and skittish, then get just the frame that she's in and, and come with a bucket and drop that whole frame in the bucket, queen and all. And you have to keep your apiary safe. Now, if you're one of these people that's way out in the boondocks, you know, and you don't care and you're raising hostile bees and you don't mind being attacked and things like that, uh, that's up to you. But you are the frontliner. You can't be the one running away. Um, I've seen that t-shirt. I'm a beekeeper. If you see me running, you should run too. I don't like that shirt. I think you should be brave and bold. I think when your bees are out of control, you're the one that has to go in there and get them. And don't do it at night. They'll all be on the ground. They'll be all over you. I recommend go ahead and getting them in the day. We're targeting the queen. She's not out and about anyway. You can put a big screen bag, one of those transport bags around the whole hive and contain them. Uh, but you have to do something about it. So bee suit. If you don't have one, all these people that talk about, I never wear a bee suit. I don't need a bee suit. I don't want a bee suit. If you get Africanized bees, you'll wish you had a bee suit. Nothing is going to protect you. And you can't run away. And it's too late to jump on Amazon and place an order. So what else do we have? Uh, what shirt is this for me? What shirt am I wearing? I don't know. I got this from, does it have their name on it? Somebody handed me the shirt at the conference. What's it? What's... It says, 
Cohen Manufacturing Company. So that was concealed carry there, long sleeves. Then take your long sleeves away, and that's open carry, the gun show. Okay. I'll meet it this time. All right, here's what we're going to do. It's 5.07. It's been an hour, and uh, I think uh, we've discussed everything, unless somebody has an emergency question. Rodney's here. How do I move bees to a new location two hours away? What do you, Rodney, what do you mean? How do you move them? You have all your bees in the hive. You use a shipping strap. You close them up. You put a robbing screen on the front. You screw that right there, close them up so it's nice and vented. You put them in the back of your car and you move them. Move them at night. Deliver them in the day. Set them up in a good spot. And that should be it. How do you move your bees? That's easy. Brave and Bold, the next beekeeper movie. Do you still have snow on the ground? No, thank goodness. It's only there is some snow left in the shadow areas, but it has melted away. So, yeah, vented box for transportation. That's it. Just make sure your hive can't come apart. Keep it really good. And like I just mentioned, they have those shipping bags that go over the top. That's just a screen mesh, so they won't be flying all over your car if something does shift. But uh, zip tie them, ratchet, strap them. And those... Uh, these smart entrances are really good to close things up. Here's another one that works really good because they have the holes. You put screws on it. You just make sure things can't move. And that's it. Another thing you could do, if, if also when you're moving your hives to another location, if you're going to set up a new hive, not necessarily the same equipment, you can get one of those um, hive butler totes. They hold 10 frames each, I believe. And you could transfer all your bees into the Hive Butler tote because they've got a cover that's got screen on the top of it so they can breathe. And that is a really practical way to move them. And then, of course, transfer all those frames into the next Hive configuration. It's also a great way for those who are thinking about, you know, this spring I want to swap out bees from this Hive. This Hive's falling apart. It's got a lot of cracks and holes and places in it that the bees are coming and going. If you want to take all your frames out and then, of course, replace the box, you could move them directly into the new box or put them into the hive butler in the same order. Put the lid on. They stay calm. The hive butler doesn't allow, you know, air movement and everything else. So it's really calming for the bees for some reason. And so then, and it also is deep enough that if you had some queen cells or things like that on the bottom of your frames, so for those of you who are going to be doing splits and things like that, the frames that have queen cells on them can also sit in the hive butler. So when you're making new nukes and things like that, it becomes a really nice holding system. I've also stopped uh, taking my frames out and putting them in a frame holder on the side of the box. Instead, I put them right in the hive butler and keep the lid on it. It makes it easy. Bees are calmer. So those are great ways to transport. And there again, while we're talking about transporting, I might have answered that question a little too quickly. Think of the direction of the frames. So we want the frames parallel to the direction of travel. If you shift them sideways, so now we have the sideways part of the frame and here's the front of your car, you hit the brakes, they, they slap into each other. So it's more aggravating to the bees. So have your frames in the direction of travel. That's another good tip there. And uh, that's it. So I want to thank you all for being here today and for enjoying another Friday. I hope you have a fantastic weekend ahead. If you want to know more, there will be links down in the description, of course. 
and all the questions that we talked about will be listed in the description as well. I don't want to thank you for being here. And if you did not get your question answered, please go to thewaytobe.org and there is a page marked The Way to Be. And that is where you can file your question or a topic for consideration for next Friday. So next Friday won't be live. This will only be the last Friday of every month. So next Friday, we're in March already. So thanks a lot. Hope you guys all have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for being here.